Welcome to the fifth episode of the TWM Real Estate Podcast. This is a podcast that looks at the influences and influencers of real estate, and it's supported and produced by TWM. I'm Sean O'Neill. I'm a director and co-owner of TWM. And with me today, we have Michael Costello, partner of BDO and head of sustainability services. So thank you, Michael, for joining us today. Delighted to join you, Sean. Thank you. There's a couple of reasons why I wanted to try and get you on the podcast. Um, one was you've just completed, I suppose, three three-year terms as managing partner of BDO. So there was a lot of things that have happened during your term that I just thought would be really interesting to get your thoughts on. And then also with your new role of head of sustainability services, that's a pretty topical issue at the moment. So we just would like to have a chat about that as well. Maybe we start off with just a little bit of background as to, you know, where you've come from and uh, and your, your your time in BDO, maybe with a background on BDO itself even, you know. Sure. Um, well, BDO is in, in total, uh, over 100 years old, um, was formed from three European firms that joined together. The Irish arm of it uh, goes back to the uh, start of the 1980s and um, has grown incredibly well since then. Um, I joined BDO in 2004 um, as an audit partner. I was an audit partner for a number of years and then took over as uh, head of audit for a while and then for the last nine years approximately I've been the managing partner so I've seen a few changes over that last nine years that's for sure Yeah so like even looking back over the nine years you you took over just after the financial crash effectively so there was a lot of yeah. challenges to deal with then um, and then after that of course there was Brexit COVID and then just to throw that into the mix you decided to move offices as well so sure. um, there's a lot of a lot of things have happened maybe you know, I suppose that, as I said we were chatting earlier the financial crash are a long time ago now so we don't yeah. need to rehash that one um, but maybe I suppose Brexit is, is probably one following the financial crash we went into in, into Brexit so there's a lot of issues to deal with not just in Ireland but also with the international side of things Sure uh, it, uh, timing's everything and I took over about 2013 which is if you look back at the economic charts it was almost the very the bottom of, of the downturn so things actually improved since then so my timing was pretty good and and in those first few years um, our business had been impacted it was interesting as you say to see the impact of international trade and BDO is very strong internationally our links with the UK and the US particularly have always been very important and what we saw from 13 onwards was probably a, a higher degree or of um interest in the Irish economy from international players then than there was at home. The confidence was low here, as you remember. So our international links were very important and um, the clients we won through that, that network over that time were really important to to, to stabilising and growing the firm again. And I think that was mirrored right across the economy. Um, our clients and uh, and ourselves were really impacted by international trade flows, particularly in services, but also in goods. And, and as you say, if we, if we fast forward to when Brexit hit us, um, interestingly, we had been uh, talking to uh, Carol Lynch for a while and decided she decided to join us. She was a customs expert, one of the, the, the leading experts in the country at the time. And when she joined us, um, we none of us anticipated Brexit was going to happen. We had, mm. all went to bed that night thinking the vote would go the right way and woke up with the opposite result. Um, but we looked very prescient then in terms of having acquired a customs business because that has grown exponentially um, because of the the trade dislocation between Ireland um, or between the EU, should I say, and and the UK. And Brexit has ma- mainly for Ireland and for our firm been a positive in terms of new business relocation and expansion of UK businesses into the EU via Ireland 
um, and then trade between the UK and Ireland has continued to grow and grow. Um, so for us, on a selfish level, and, and actually for quite a lot of our clients, Brexit has been more of an opportunity than a threat. Mm. Uh, and it's probably both more positives than negatives overall. And do you think actually in a funny way... Um you know, the uh, following the financial crash, we n- we noticed it ourselves, and and uh, you know we set up TWM just just at the just after the crash, and one of the reasons was we could see an opportunity for international investors coming into Ireland who needed their hand held effectively, I suppose. So, I suppose did that help you when Brexit hit that you had built up more of an international client base, or or did it have any impact? Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think. Um the interest in the Irish economy and in uh, you know FDI coming in here never really waned, in, um, only for a brief time during the financial crisis. So a- after that, that was very strong, and our connections internationally were very strong when Brexit hit. So people looking to access the EU from the states, for instance, that's the obvious one. Um, you know, we're less likely to look at the UK, obviously, and Ireland has benefited um, with those FDI flows and our firm has benefited because of the, the relationships we built up and, and the track record we had in terms of um, helping companies establish here. So you're probably right. I think we all acquired um, more of an interest, more skills around international business uh, from 2013 onwards, and it probably put us in a better place and was mm. one of the reasons that Ireland has navigated Brexit better than expected, I suppose. And what sectors have you have you really seen the impact of, of Brexit, the positive impact, I suppose? The positive impact is, is, is on the services side, you know, financial services, technology companies also, but also in, in, in some very niche engineering businesses um, and some med tech uh, businesses as well. So they're probably the main ones. Um, the ones that have struggled the most are are more the more agricultural, the the, the primary producers, um, and and people that are in low margin products, mm-hmm. um, which which have been impacted by the additional cost of doing business in the UK and and into Europe with the land bridge gone. You know. Yeah, and do you see you see that continuing? Yeah, I do, I do. But and and look, if you look at the Irish economy over the last twenty years, the dependence on agricultural produce and products has reduced dramatically over that period. And you know, we're as an economy, thankfully more heavily weighted in high margin businesses like technology, financial services, chemicals, engineering and uh, and others. So I think it's as much a move away from lower margin commodity businesses as it is a move to businesses that are focused on the European market. Mm. So, you know, one of the things that IBEC talk a lot about is that, you know, the in measuring the the output of the Irish economy, we, we do discount a lot of the intellectual property that that you know it moves and 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 distorts the numbers in our FDI numbers, and um, but we also have to take into account that with all that IP here, there's a lot of high margin business going on here, which is is really strong for the economy. Yeah, and you're like I mean BDO would be pretty strong in terms of um at, you know real estate clients, and you you have a bit of a background on that too. Did you see? Uh, I suppose you would have seen the positive and negatives over the years yeah. in, in in exposure to that business. But has that grown or succeeded throughout the last few issues we've had in the economy? Well, it's been certainly been an up. Uh, it's been a cyclical, but it's always been a cyclical business, hasn't it? Um, my, as you say, my my own background is very strongly in in um, in real estate. My own client base uh, was was heavily influenced by real estate businesses uh, right back to when I started in practice uh, 30 years ago. And I've seen a, a big change in the industry as you have um, much more of an institutionalization of the business over time. Um, 
and a lot of players a lot of have gone out of the business so you could take that at house building level but also building on the commercial side you, you there are fewer players um and the players that are here now have both capital and oversight from you know international players as well so the advisory business has has changed a lot so it's much less personality driven i would say than it was when i started in it um there were some very strong characters that um, you know, drove very, very substantial businesses and created a lot of development. Um, and that has changed a lot now. The financial analysis uh, that goes into things has, has completely changed. But I suppose we, we saw a little bit of that. Some of our clients were involved in international developments, even going back to 2010 to 2015. And we saw that the requirements in, in the international markets from lenders and, and um, from regulators from planners were were much more sophisticated then than was in Ireland and, and Ireland has caught up quite a lot since so I'd say we're now mirroring the kind of loan documentation the kind of planning documentation that went on yeah. maybe and, a few years ahead probably, of us we're probably seen now as, as a much more transparent market so you know a lot of the international players will come here because they can they can see through to what's actually going on in the economy and the, and the market itself uh, rather than what it probably used to be like to some degree a bit of a um, an in-house type of market. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right um, and, and there's there's always this um, and a view from Ireland that you know um, we're probably a little bit more opaque here than other places but there I've seen clients work in, in quite large markets like, like Germany where some some aspects of that aren't quite so transparent mm. uh, in, do, in doing business there. So yes, the Irish market has become more transparent and more accessible, I would say, for international players. And that is reflected in the number of international players that look at opportunities to, yeah. you know, even now. One of the things actually just mentioned there that, you know, the oversight from lenders overseas uh, previously, what we've seen here, I suppose, is, is a lack of lending in, in the more recent past. Is that something that you've seen throughout um, the different sectors and not just real estate? Yeah, absolutely. So the um, ECB and um, the central bank now um, have, have a very you know, very stringent regulation, very stringent oversight. So the banks are extremely constrained in what they can do um, and they can't vary that uh, that risk appetite um, just on their own. They, they, that's very much imposed. So, you know, even with the challenges that are happening in some parts of the real estate market now, you you don't have the over-leverage position that we would have had in 2008, 2009 and that's because the system was designed to let, let that happen mm. again. So I think the, um, the non-bank lenders have become more significant but they're also more significant in most most other markets mm. bank lending is it has historically been a very high percentage of debt uh, into all Irish businesses um, and that's reducing quite dramatically and I think will continue to, to, to go that way you know but the, I suppose one of the issues we have is the, the exit of the foreign banks here leaving the, leaving the market so that's kind of really limited the the choice that, that uh, all players have not just the real estate sector but in other sectors I presume very good. It's almost no choice now, right? It, um, and um, there, as I said, if you combine that with a, with a low risk appetite, it means that um, you know debt will only go so far. What it does mean, though, is that the equity players now have have more opportunity. So Irish people, business people, were very very slow historically to take on equity, take equity into their business to dilute their ownership. That has had to change, and you know some of the things we've done with our development capital fund. Uh, when we started that a number of years ago, Irish businesses were very cautious about taking on equity. But there's been some great success stories. Uh, one of our, the earliest investments we made was in version one. And uh, I would say that the success of that has actually spurred on 
other technology businesses to take equity and and to uh, to uh, accelerate their growth plans mm. and uh, and to also to add other expertise and an objective view of their business. So you know, yeah. if you do it right, you can bring more than just the money to the table. Yeah. One of the other, uh, I suppose, issues that you ended up having to deal with was COVID, which which again was something unexpected that hit yeah. us quite quickly. What, what impact, I suppose, I suppose a lot of us know a lot of the impacts, but specific impacts maybe you saw not just in, in BDO, how you dealt with it, but um, other clients uh, and things that went from there. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to put your mind back to what it was like, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. uh, it's so different, but it was it was there was real fear at the start of what the impact would be for all of us and for our businesses. And one of the earliest things we had to get our head around was whether we would have to make cutbacks, you know, severe cutbacks in the business, and uh, whether that would involve um, people's jobs as well. And we made a very early decision that we were we were not going to we were going to do everything we possibly could to ensure that people didn't lose their job and. Um, that was when I look back now it, it kind of looks obvious because of the government supports that came through but at the time it was a real worry would you be able to pay people and uh, would the business survive um, but it was also a crucial decision because the solidarity that came from that decision meant we kind of dealt with things together and I think that also was that was true in the individual businesses but that was true across society wasn't it um, mm. because there was people didn't take advantage. Like if you if you think about what might have happened cash flows around, uh, you know, people continued to pay their bills. They just didn't hoard cash and not pay each other because, you know, historically through, through a down cycle, you know, people would stop paying and the cash flow cycle would would dry up. But that didn't happen. And I think that was one of the reasons the government did a pretty good job in what they did in terms of keeping people employed uh, and the subsidies. But they were also able to do that because of the, the use approach um, uh, and that was a very different approach than in the financial crisis where there was a lot of finger pointing going on and, you know, people having to take and, pain. And, and didn't have the money to do Yeah, anything. and there was, there was no talk of the uh, moral dilemma of, of sort of paying people that had made wrong decisions, you know. So there was none of that this time around. And I think that early decision to make sure everybody was looked after coloured everything that happened after that. And clearly we cut back on some areas of spend um, and, you know, there was virtually no growth for a 12-month period. But then actually when we when we came out of that, um, growth returned pretty well to the economy. Our clients um, did well again. Um, there was clear, uh, clearly there were some businesses hit even much harder than others and, and some didn't survive, particularly in the hospitality industry yeah. and the experience industry. But in most other areas, people came out of it pretty well and actually individuals and businesses save some money yeah. during that well, that's period. A, I was just going to make that point. I think maybe businesses are run more efficiently now because of it. You know, I think people, because of what happened with the various, um, you know, with the pandemic happened, Brexit happening, you never know what's around the corners. And uh, people are much more tuned into that, I think, now than they ever, well, maybe not, but for as long as I can remember, you, you just watch what you're, you watch what you're spending, you watch your cash flow a lot more yeah. closely. Maybe. That, was, that was like, some of the things that we returned to at that time, we had we had um, uh, daily executive committee meetings then at that time. And so that was, you know, watching it as closely as you possibly could. And I think some of those disciplines were, as you say, they were good things to learn and to reacquaint yourself with because they're essential for all businesses. And they're things that accountants, but also investors would, would preach to their investee companies to really watch the cash flows and to continually monitor that. So, yeah, I, I think there were some good habits re-established then and they've probably been, hopefully been remembered for a lot of businesses. And maybe that's one of the reasons that we're 
dealing with the inflation cycle mm. a little bit better than might have been thought as well, you know. Just, I suppose, one of the flips out that there was, and, you, and anecdotally you read about a lot of companies who uh, took took advantage of the debt warehousing scheme and that's still there. Like, I mean, okay, the government are not, are, are telling everyone now to pay it off, <laughs> if you have it. Is that having a, having an impact on, on certain sectors? I think it will inevitably have, have an impact and um, it's it's a slow burn one because it was, it, was, it was put off by quite a while, but it'll certainly constrain um, growth and output in the, in the next number of years. Or I'd, I'd be reasonably hopeful that if, if inflation peaks and interest rate peak um, before the end of this year or shortly after that, that, you know, most businesses will survive um, that impact. But it will be a dampener on growth and output for the next few years, which is probably in some macro ways not a not a bad thing for the Irish economy because we were, you know, um, probably there was, there was excessive heating in the economy, excessive demand and, you know, into a wage spiralling um, cycle that is damaging for Ireland, you know. And we do have some capacity constraints with housing and other things. So um, some constraint on output is not a bad thing, although it's hard to sell that to a business that is struggling with with a pretty high warehouse debt that has to be paid off. Yeah, I, that's that's another uh, negative impact that the economy has had to deal with recently is yeah. the, the sudden, you know, the war in Ukraine and then the sudden uh, interest rate increase in interest rates that we've had to deal with very quickly. Um, and have you seen that having, you know, a, another impact on Yeah, well, on if you think about, you know, Brexit followed by COVID, followed by Ukraine, the interest rates, you know, that's, they're, they're quite quick yeah. um, hits to the to the cycle. Um, they, those those were used to be six or eight years apart. Now they seem to be no more than two years apart, yeah. the, these crises. So, um, y- you can't, be complacent about that, I don't think, because if this interest rates and inflation cycle stays ingrained for a long time, there there be really bad effects on the world economy and, and inevitably on the Irish economy. But you know, f- for now, um, businesses are getting paid. That cash flow is 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 reasonably healthy. Employment is incredibly strong, and um, we're pretty much at full employment, and and we're still in a growth phase. So if you look at the the all the predictions for the Irish economy for the next um, for this year and for next two years are, are positive numbers um, and that's not the case for most other developed economies mm. so I think we'll continue to do a little bit better than our our peers and but inevitably interest rates will have to stay a little bit ha- higher for longer yeah, I which, suppose which they're, has they're, which has changed people's views of yeah. the business, hasn't it? It's it's, it's definitely changed, and it's changed people's you know from a property point of view, their expected returns that they need to to hit. Yeah. But it's this, the interest rates are probably at a, you know a level which we would have been used to fifteen years ago. You know, yeah. Um, when we, I, certainly, we, you know, when, when when I started in business, uh, like the, the interest rates were at this level and higher. You know. Yeah, low to mid single figures was you know was was a good place to be, wasn't yeah. it? Um, so you know zero interest rates couldn't last forever, and mm. it was a bit of an anomaly. Um, Unfortunately, we didn't think it. <laughs> when you have zero interest rates, you like to think it's going to last forever. Um, yeah. But it, it's had a it's had a, a big impact on sort of expected return, hasn't it? So like we talked a minute ago about the um, non bank lenders. Well, their cost of funds has, has just increased dramatically. Yeah. Um, so that has changed the the outlook for their portfolio, uh, existing portfolio, but also it's changed the outlook for their their uh, new business appetite. Mm. I think we're still going through the adjustment of that and that, I think that will take a little bit longer now for business to, to adjust. There's again. still a lot of uncertainty. Through all that interest rate, if you know, your 
your margin control is really important. So you find out very quickly what power you have to increase prices with your customers, you know. And I think that's, that's to me, one of the most important focuses for any business is to look at their ability to change their pricing and to maintain margins through an inflationary cycle. And I think, um, you know, real estate kind of a, is, is a bit of a strange business in that. There isn't a lot of, mm. you know, and particularly in a, a lot of parts of it, there isn't room to increase pricing very quickly. It's a it's a slow cycle, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's even, particularly on the development side of things, you're not only dealing with that that uh, higher higher margin, higher debt cost, but you're dealing with higher bill cost because it's, hit, it's hitting, it's a, you know, a double whammy. And at the same time, then can you increase prices? It's it's you know it's a difficult one. So a lot of those new developments are, are you know feasibility is is an issue at the moment. Yeah. I think one of the things that that one of the benefits from uh, BDO being part of a, a very strong international business is that we get the perspective of other markets, and it's something that's probably not talked about enough in the Irish context. Is you know we talk about housing being hard to get, rents are very expensive, but we you know we don't compare enough. I think with with sort of our peers and see are some of these things been experienced in other developed markets? You know, and they are is the answer. Yeah. You know, not in every single one in the same way, but it is difficult to find accommodation in in most developed um, economies, and the the percentage of your your disposable income is probably the bit that's the bit that worries me because with with relatively high margin rates of tax and a very high percentage of the disposable income going on, on accommodation, it, it does put a big squeeze on, on people mm. that they can't invest in and build for the future. So I think that's the bit the government should still continue to look at. Yeah. You know, um, and, and that's the bit we should be focused on. Just going back again, I suppose, to, to COVID and looking at post-COVID, yeah. you know, and the way of working, I suppose, I'm, I'm thinking of remote working, all of that. How is, how is that impacting on, on BDO? It's almost the first question, isn't it, that all, but most <laughs> people um, in business ask each other because we're still feeling our way through it and everybody's looking for everyone else's experience in it. I, I, My own view is that I think it'll take a, num- a number of years for this to settle down to some sort of new norm. Um, I think in reality, most businesses are struggling a bit in terms of the, the benefits to the individual are very obvious in terms of flexible working, um, commuting time, being able to um, look after family commitments, maybe caring for an elderly parent or, or children, as well as, you know, some types of work lending themselves quite well to, to flexible work um, where you're doing solo tasks and you need a bit of peace and quiet and, you know. But then my view is that most organisations of that are in a sort of a higher um IP or into, you know, more difficult tasks require collaboration, problem solving, innovation. And that is much, much, much more efficient um, and productive in in a in-person environment. And mm. the obvious one as a training firm is that, that we find that our trainees, you know, progress about 30 to 40 percent less in a, a work from home environment than they do in the office. And that's because that's they observe so point. much more. Uh, when they're in the office together, they they, they they learn from each other's questions as well as their own. Where at home, it's very hard to learn from some other someone else's uh, questions. You hear things going on, you absorb stuff much faster. I think when you're there in, in person, and we've we've measured this particularly in our order business, which is very structured. Um, but so I I think we are we're like a lot of businesses. We we compete for the best talent. Um, it is a full employment market. And there's a lot of choice in terms of um, graduates 
and school leavers now. So um, you've got to be attractive and you've got to embrace the, the best parts of um, flexibility. But at the same time, recognise that um, the most productive environments are where there's a, where there is an, a strong element of in-person working. Yeah. Uh, and that also then translates into a strong culture for the business, which is so important for long-term yeah. success. I think there, there's a, there is a danger, and I, I'm... I don't make any apology, but I like to see people in the office. Um, but I think there's a danger that if, uh, and a kind of responsibility on companies to, to get people back into the office as much as possible. I know there's always going to be an element of remote working, but it doesn't do anybody any good from a training point of view to be sitting at home. But pe- people can get into the habit of it. So I think, you know, it's to try and show the benefits, I suppose, isn't it, of getting back into the office? Yeah, and, and I think if you're advising um, somebody leaving college now, um, like my kids are getting to that, that age now, um, you'd be saying, be in as much as you possibly can because you'll absorb and learn mm. twice as fast. You'll build relationships. You'll, you know, you'll have a much more um, fulfilling but then, you know, when people get to, you know, different stages in their lives, they, they have other priorities yeah. as well. So you have to, I think, allow for it and be, be um, allow um, people to choose why they want to be in the office. But for me, you know, a predominance in, in, in the office is better than the other way around. Yeah. Uh, we've tried to keep away from strict one, two, three days kind of ma- mantras because that's pretty inflexible. Um, but at the same time, when you're working with big teams, you have to have some guidelines where nobody knows what's going on, you know? Yeah, yeah. That brings us nicely onto your new offices. Yeah. Um, so one of the one of the uh, things that you managed to achieve was that big, that a move and for a, an office uh, or a, a company the size of BDO, that wasn't easy, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, no, it was, a big, it was a big task. We were coming to the end of a 20-year lease and so we could see that deadline for a long time and uh, we were planning quite extensively when COVID hit and we were well ahead of the curve and I, I would say that COVID slowed down our planning and um, our search, you know. Uh, so we found that we probably only had a two, you know, two-year window, you know, when we got back to it and that was slow, that was the short term, a short time to try and make it happen but we did. We, we, we had an extensive search of the market um, and we had our requirements. Uh, we had a very long list of criteria I think we had 13 um, major criteria and we spent a lot of time uh, scoring them and ranking them what, and what sort of things were included in that oh every, everything from like the, the things that changed over like the interesting is that some of those criteria change in importance um, over that period so uh, you know when I started in accountancy I'd say that the number one a thing in relation to what you know, an office was, you know, what clients would think of their experience, the clients would have. Yeah. But we find uh, that's still important. But the the staff important uh, experience now is more important, probably for most businesses. Uh, so that's something that that was important and continued to be. Thing, but our whole sustainability, the whole ESG part of it, was something that was on the list at the start, but really came right up to the top of it by the time we were making the the decision. So that didn't surprise us, but it just shows that. Um, that is coming more and more to the fore in decision making now, and is 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 one of the three most important factors in most of these big decisions for companies. Um, and the experience of staff and being able to attract them is obviously very important. Um, the neighbourhood um, facilities um, was obviously really really important, um, and not just the working facilities, but um, the, the cycling and showering and all those other kind of things that 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 you need for a modern office. So yeah, a very a very long list um 
and one that um, needed continuous um, updating. Uh, we got advice in terms of those criteria. We got other people to score them as well as ourselves uh, to try and eliminate some of our own biases. Um, and we ended up in a in a very good place with a very good result at the end of it. So we were yeah. we also required a bit of luck because we <laughs> we did find a deal off market as well. So I suppose when you're looking everywhere, you'll probably hopefully yeah. come across one of those. You know, yeah. and it's all. I suppose it, it, it's you're still settling in, I presume, yeah. like, you know, trying to get it's used only, to it. It's only the end of February since right at the end of my uh, nine year term. So with that we moved in and uh, I say we're still getting used to the place to some extent, uh, but people seem to really enjoy the environment. And, you know, we, we, we one of the most difficult things I think now in terms of the decision is, is, is the space planning piece. How much space do you need? Yeah. I suppose the historic view would be you take twice or three times what you need and then sublet. Uh, and then grow into the space over time. Um, so we had to try and project out growth as well as factoring in um, flexibility, work from home, more intensification. And and we kind of ended up with, with two graphs kind of crossing uh, uh, sometime into the future where we took more space than we need now. But uh, so that allows for growth from the start. But we didn't take three times what we need because yeah. we think there'll be an intensification in use of the building over time, you know. Yeah. Um, we, we we saw one or two really small premises that would have constrained us from day one. And if you fully believed that the work from home model was the way to go and that you would only need one desk for four or five, every four or five people, well, then that would have been the way to go. But we couldn't get our head around taking less space than we needed day one. Yeah. And and allowing for growth. So we didn't do that. We took we took a bigger space. Maybe maybe this is a silly question to ask an accountant, but was rent a very important point? <laughs> From our point of view, you always hear, you know, okay, rent is important. Yeah. Rent is very important, obviously, to the, the landlord. Um yeah. But for the occupier, is it, it wasn't the absolute driver in our case um, uh, that we went for the the cheapest option or ranked them entirely on rent. Um, some flexibility around the lease terms was was kind of important, um, but also the security of tenure was very important as well. So those thing, those three things com- uh, combined were important. But I wouldn't say it was just a pure cost of rent decision. Yeah. Um, surprisingly, maybe for accountants. <laughs> <laughs> And I suppose that, again, neatly, you mentioned about sustainability um, and that was an important, that that became a lot more important as you went through the process over time. And your new role now as head of sustainability services, um, I noticed on your LinkedIn that you've done a certificate in sustainability strategy, risk and reporting. So that all sounds very complicated. You might yeah. just explain well, that on your role. Sure. Well, well, the first thing is it is very complicated. The whole thing <laughs> is very complicated. I don't think I've ever come across an area in my career where you, you start to learn about it and it just becomes more complex and more complex and more complex as you get into it. Um, but it's it's the new reality, um, not just for, for, for accountants, although it is very important for accounts, but it's important. It's a new area and reality for nearly all businesses. I I think it's it's not just new regulation. It's 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 a new it's a new framework for regulation. So most EU regulation will have this lens on it. I think going forward because it provides a purpose for regulation and it provides an explanation for why we're doing a lot of stuff. Um, so yeah, the big big picture is that. Um, and this is coming for all businesses and it's coming very rapidly. The EU has done an awful lot of work behind the scenes in the last number of years and is, is ready to go uh, with its CSDR um, directive. And, um, you know, that will be transposed into Irish law very soon. And the regulations start to hit pretty soon after that. And, you know, the first wave 
are the public interest entities and the public companies, all those. Um, but very soon after that, um, what they call large companies um, will be hit and we will, will, will be part of that. So for us as a, as a company, even if we weren't providing services, we'd have to get our own mm. house in order. And, and that strategy around that requires quite a lot of work. Um, and it was one of you know, the biggest determinants, as I said a, a few minutes ago, of our decision to move into the building. And I think you're seeing now, um, and you'd know this better than I would, but kind of a, a, a divergence in the, in the market between buildings that are seen and that are, you know, tangibly better from a, an ESG point of view and ones that aren't and ones that might struggle to get there. Yeah. Um, but one of the, one of the things that was, was said to me during the whole decision-making process around the move was that, you know, um, a very high percentage of the carbon in a building over its entire lifetime is in the steel and concrete that goes into building it. Yeah. So no matter how efficient you are around the windows and the air conditioning after that, you can't recover that if it's, you know, in comparison. So uh, to go to an existing build is by far the the most efficient yeah. from an ESG point of view, from a carbon point of view, and that's what we did. And uh, but but refurbs require a lot of skill and a lot of investment to be made work from an ESG point of view. And we happened to be lucky to find one that had had that investment that was done from the to the very highest international standards. So um, that's that's the ideal scenario. We were lucky to find one in the right place, the right size, with the right. Um, amenities and facilities that, that ticked all those boxes um, but I think what one of the, the issues I saw an article over the, the weekend about the IFSC and the buildings down there um, that yeah. you know the best companies in the world have very high commitments to ESG standards so their buildings have to be best in class and we probably don't have enough of those buildings really even for the current occupiers let alone for growth in the future so there is you know, if you look at that, you must think there must be a massive amount of a really high quality refurb opportunities. Well, we see, yeah, we do see a lot of, you know, a, a focus on, um, like what you said, that the, the carbon footprint of a, of, a, of a new build is a lot higher than if you can just refurbish a building. So there is a focus, but then it's it's how you, how you make it work is the issue. And I, it just seems to be that things keep changing. So, you know, and, and the the, the uh, elements of the building that you need to focus on changes and so it's 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 a complicated area yeah I, I think the developer has to have a pretty long um have to have deep pockets first of all to do it right but has to have an obsession to do it right as well because uh, it's not easy to meet those standards and you need to take a pretty long-term view of the payback for that I would think um because those requirements are very expensive in nearly all cases and um I think that the commitment that big financial institutions that that quality employers have to the ESG agenda isn't likely to change in the near future. So if you, if you want to attract them and keep them, you're going to have to provide that product to them. I think, yeah. and uh, and there's the opportunity. There's the opportunities to do that really well and and efficiently. The efficiently bit, I think, is is going to take a while. To yeah. get right, but it can be done well. There are some really good, ex um, including our own building, good examples where it has been done very well. But we've seen, you know, on the investment side of things, investors coming in, uh, and obviously, if they can get a, you know, a net zero building and it's already there, that's great. But if they look at at a building that's older and has a poor rating, they just want to know how do they get it up, how to get it to an yeah. acceptable standard, and that's the the the, ti the timeline and being able to do it 
is is critical but also having a tenant in place a lot of the a lot of the um the rating will come from the tenant fit out so you need you need a kind of a collaboration i think between the tenant and the and, and the the owner you do I, some of the, interesting when i look back now at some of the buildings we we um we viewed as part of our search um some of the new bills are completed and up and running now as as, as and would have been options but some of the ones that were being, were were refurbs aren't yet completed yeah. and they were said to be completed 12 months ago 18 months ago so you can see you know there's very that, that the time scale for those is very difficult to estimate I would suggest uh, and that's difficult for a tenant uh, an occupier you know yeah the the, the fit out companies are are definitely adapting pretty quickly to the demands and they're and they're they're probably more flexible in that you know they source product they don't they don't you know it's not their own product they have you know they can they can find new solutions quickly um and and their their business models are 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 more suited to that kind of um that environment so we found that yeah on the fit outside uh, we worked with a really good partner and they they um they came up with suggestions all the time but we found that their experience of working with some of the best companies really paid off as well because they had had the exposure to pretty high requirements from some of the big tech companies some of the big um, financial services and professional services firms so they were already attuned to delivering a very good quality outcome for their for their clients and there's probably some quick wins you can you know you can you can make to a building you know alterations you can make to a building that can get the, the rating up reasonably to a reasonable standard reasonably quickly yeah well obviously the the whole um the whole air conditioning side of it is a big big impact on it so if the building is it's hard to fix that if it's not right from the start so yeah. that's that's a probably fundamental one but water usage um and the building management systems and things have have, have evolved even, you know yeah. solar yeah. panels um rainwater harvesting uh, but in 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 the fit out piece we were f- pretty keen to recycle and reuse where we could rather than do all, all brand new i've always found it odd that you know fit out and furnishings cost a fortune when you're putting them in and are worth absolutely zero when you're trying to get rid of them so that's a huge waste isn't it there must be warehouses Mm. full of stuff that's almost new um and and are are almost worthless so i think over hopefully on time that waste will will be eliminated from the system a little bit and we certainly did our best to to reuse what was was there and uh provided it was up to a good quality yeah very good i think we've uh We've gone a long time. We could talk about sustainability <laughs> forever. <laughs> yeah, the only thing I would say is that on that, and you, you did mention the fact that I had done the certificate yeah. with Chartered Accountants Ireland, um, and I would suggest that that in most cases, senior people, but also people coming up through their career, need to educate themselves. There's there's a lot to learn, and this is not sort of personal development stuff that's nice to do. This is, you know. Um, is career critical um, technical learning and there are you know there are directives and legislation coming in which are very very specific and we you know accountants um, but also people in in production people in in uh, logistics in um, operations need to become more au fait with all this stuff Um, the largest companies again are are leading this and they have dedicated resources driving these agendas within them but a lot of companies it's been added on to the role of the CFO mm. or yeah. the, the COO um, and I think a good starting point is to educate yourself about what what's all about well, the it, acronyms it's, it's, alone are, is, yeah, it, is, like is an exercise but it's something that's come at us quite 
quite yeah. quickly. It's yeah. been it's been out there, but it, but in the last two years, even you know, it's it's really become a big issue, um, and it's it's crept into the investment market, the occupier market, the banking market. It's you know, so it, it's it's something that we all do need to know more about. Ola. Yeah, cost of funds will be directly impacted. I think yeah. there'll be a one or two percent um, uh, penalty or or discount depending on which side of that you're mm. on going forward so I yeah. think that l- alone will focus people's minds definitely when the money's involved it definitely will <laughs> yeah look thank you very much Michael for, for taking part that was extremely we, we went through a lot of uh, your career and things that have happened and um, uh, best of luck in the future Raul. thank you Sean. Thanks, thanks for joining thank us thank you for listening you can find out more about TWM on twmproperty.ie and this podcast and future episodes will be available on our website. Uh, You can also listen wherever you find your podcasts and we'll see you in the next one.